Hey, welcome back to the Prairie Pod. I'm Megan Bennett, regional ecologist with the DNR, and I'm sitting here with my buddy, Jessica Peterson, the Prairie Habitat Research Scientist. We're here in Slayton, Slayton office. I know, it's we've awesome. never been in the Slayton office before. How are you feeling about this, Jess? I absolutely love it here. I kind of like it. You know, I have to say, if you've never been to the Slayton office, it's one of those DNR offices that's really special and unique because you come down Main Street, basically, although it's Broadway here in town, but it's basically the Main Street of the downtown, and we're tucked in (laughs) right there on Broadway, and you can't miss us because there's a super friendly taxidermied squirrel who looks like he's going to jump on you in the window display. He's got his arms raised in the air. I call him Chucky, Chucky the squirrel. He's ready to greet you right here at the Slayton office. (laughs) And there's a weasel. There's all kinds of things they got. Some pheasants. What was your favorite? It's I just like that it's right here in the middle of town and really accessible. I think that's, I think that's great. I know. I like it. And We are here with two very special guests today because like all good things that we do in the DNR and for conservation in general, it happens because of partnerships. And so we're going to highlight a huge project that wouldn't have happened without Area Wildlife Manager Bill Shuna and Assistant Area Wildlife Manager Kenton Scott. See, they are here. They're really, they're nervous. We're making them a little nervous with our level of enthusiasm. But we're going to talk about the Swetsinger Wildlife Management Area. This is a huge reconstruction or restoration, depending on who you are, project that was undertaken, was it last year? Started in 2015. 2015. Gosh, where have I been? It's gone on so long, it seems like it was last year. And we're sad to say John Lindstrom with Ducks Unlimited was supposed to be here today and he had a work conflict, so he couldn't be, but he also was part of this group as well as Cassie Hendricks, who both work for Ducks Unlimited. And so they were a huge part of this partnership effort getting this site into a wildlife management area. So it should come as no surprise that we're going to talk about this unit. It's in Nobles County. And we had the challenge of restoring an entire section of land to prairie and wetland. Talk about a big deal, a big, big deal. And Bill and Kent are the muscle behind all of this. They really put a ton of hours into this. Bill, how many sleepless nights do you think you had? More than one. (laughs) (laughs) Bill is the type, for those of you who don't know Bill, He's uh, fondly referred to as Bayonet Bill here in the DNR now because of his recent turkey hunt, which we'll get into that in the in a little bit. But he really cares about what he's doing on site, as most of our wildlife managers and conservation folks do. And so he cares so much that he takes this home and stresses about it to make sure that he's making the right decision. I have never received so many phone calls from wildlife manager in my life <laughs> as when we were restoring this. But it was good. It was all good. So let's, uh, Jess, should we jump right in? Yeah, let's start at the beginning. Tell us a little bit about the work that you do just in general. You know, what, what kind of work do you do on a, on a regular basis? We manage wildlife management areas. That's what we do. What does that mean? Yeah, what does that mean? How does, how does one manage? That's really, it's a really a big thing that you do. So what are some of the things that that entails? We have grasslands, and wetlands, facilities, all that rolled into, takes people, yeah, a lot of people, a lot of time, money. Cool. So, Kent, give us a, give us a 
some background about what you do on a regular basis to manage these areas. Besides, keep Bill in line. <laughs> I mean, don't tell people that. Tell them the real thing. No, a lot of uh, a lot of field work. I do a lot of the field work. A lot of the seedings. Um, we do a lot of burning. A lot of the on the ground work. I guess you'd say. Um, do a lot of well, Megan's not gonna like this. Do the I kind of run the spray crew, but uh, <laughs> I just cringed. There is such a thing as noxious weed control. I know, we, I know, we have to take care of I know. Things. And you, we've talked about this in many, many podcasts. But you guys know Kent knew because of our partnership. He he knows I was going to cringe at that because when you spray new plantings, and we'll talk about this. We have talked about this in the establishment podcast. Uh, when you spray new plantings, it makes it really difficult for your forbs to establish because essentially whatever you're using, even if it's a targeted spray, it's hitting them as well. And so we're trying to work with Bill and Kent quite a bit to limit the amount that we spray when we do these really diverse restorations so that we can keep them diverse and nice. But like anything that we do, there's lots of challenges and pressures. And so sometimes we do need to spot spray areas. Kent, spot spray <laughs> he just laughs i'm doing better he is he's in a program <laughs> he's doing a lot better so megan is it spot spray as opposed to boom spray correct oh, correct okay. we like to see a little bit of targeted spraying so that we're I never like to see where we just go out there and we've got maybe a handful of Canada thistle and we go spray the whole site. That's a bad deal right there because then you're targeting everything, all of your forbs and not just the Canada thistle areas. So Bill, walk us through what it takes to restore land on this scale. I mean, Swessinger is really large. It's an entire section. That's 640 acres of land. Tell us some of the things that had to happen in order for this to become a reality. First of all, you got to look at what's restorable. That was cropland, so I use ArcMap for the most part. Raw polygon, see how many acres you got. Then look at the soils and look at the topography. And we used a lot of clipping. Um, those that do GIS know what that's all about. Um, clipping out the soils in the, the shape file that was going to be seeded down. Come up with a seed mix. Consult a lot of books. Consult an air uh, regional ecologist Woo-hoo! many, many times <laughs> um, to come up with seed mixes. Not we didn't do one mix fits all, one size fits all. We did four mixes: the dry sites, mesic, wet, and then wetter wetland, as opposed to not just wetter. So restored wetlands got seeded down too. It was it was quite the process, but we came up with. Some products, got some, some bags of seed, and Kent went out there and in between uh, wetland restorations while work was going on, and Kent can talk about that, but um, went out multiple times over the winter of 2016-17 to seed most of it down. One of the fields, a 52-acre field, I believe, was seeded down in 20, all of 15. Did you broadcast plant that, Kent? What were you doing? Were you drilling it, broadcasting it? You planted it in the winter? I would say most of it was broadcasted. We drilled in the hills, the dry mix we drilled in, <clears throat> just because we were worried about wind erosion and stuff, so we wanted to get that in the ground instead of just laying up on top. So I would say most of it was viconned, just broadcast, and a small portion was drilled. 
Good. And so even the drilled parts, did that happen in the wintertime? No, that was all in the fall. Okay. I did all the broadcasting. That all took place in the wintertime. This ground is obviously frozen. You can't use a drill in the wintertime. We had perfect conditions in this that winter, too, where there wasn't a lot of snow. I like it. So you guys, everything kind of lined up where you had these really good conditions to make it happen. So how do we get an entire section of land? How is that something that even, like, how does the DNR acquire a section? I don't mean, like, oh, well, we met with a realtor and the realtor met with Linda. I just mean, like, how, what was motivating the landowner here? We were approached by a farm management company who knew that the heirs of David B. Jones wanted, David himself wanted some of his property to go into wildlife conservation. So this was the perfect parcel as the farm management company knew that there were many, many drained wetlands, restorable wetlands on this section. And also that it wasn't the best crop ground in the world. In fact, a local farmer told me that it was a wet farm that needed much, much more tile to be a profitable farm. When the hill hilltops were eroded, um, so we were excited when we were approached by the farm management company. And then we looked at the restorable wetland inventory, saw that there were over 30 restorable wetlands on the site. Whoa, that's a lot. 30. Yeah. That's a lot of work. And most of them are restored. There's a, still still a few that Ducks Unlimited will be restoring them. Part of that partnership again, which yes. is really nice. So tell us, this is obviously a huge challenge. This was a very large acreage, lots of work that needed to be do, to be done. But tell us a little bit about what excited you from the onset about this project, and what what got you going? Because there's you, you, I'm sure you knew there was lots of challenges ahead. But what what's the most exciting part for you? How often does an area manager get to restore an entire contiguous section of land at once? Never, never. Once? Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe once. That's what excited us about it. For sure. Is Bill speaking for you, Kent? Is that what excited you as well? Yeah, I would agree. That was pretty fun. It's always fun to do a whole section at a time. I've had, I've been lucky to do three of them in my career. Whoa! Getting Bill beat here. Kent's got three. Bill's got one. <laughs> okay, so because this podcast, we're really trying to help people figure out the science of restoration because it is such a new science. We talk about this, I think, almost every time, right, Jess? Like oh, yeah. we talk about how it's like the 70s, this kind of emerging science of how do we put land back. And we know that it's incredibly challenging because we don't even understand all of the connections that happen in an ecosystem. We don't. It would be foolish to think that we do. So you said earlier um, that you were trying to match in ArcMap the soils on site with your seed mix. So you didn't just do one blanket mix because obviously in a section of land, you're going to have lots of different soil types. And so it wouldn't make sense to just put one seed mix out there and be like, well, that's a Hail Mary. We hope that works out. You were trying to do it based on moisture and gradient. But tell me a little bit about... Um, after you did your mapping, as we all know, the soil survey is a fantastic resource, but because of how many acres they map at a time, it doesn't always match up when you're looking at an exact site. So how did you 
after you did your office part, take me through the steps um, that it took you to, re to restore the site, like including taking those maps that you made out to the field, and then how did you match it up when you were actually on site? Well, after we mapped out the sites, all the sites, we decided to flag the dry sites because those would be planted first. And so we're out there in the field flagging, and we're standing in wet soil, and we're supposed to be in a dry site. And it's like, hmm, something's wrong here. So while we're in the field, we changed the GPS points on the fly, adjusted our acres, and uh, Kent went to work once once it was all flagged, and he used, uh, and he can talk about this, he used a GPS uh, device in the tractor. How'd that work, Kent? Good. So basically, yeah, it's a Trimble 250, and on the screen, so when you go, you can set your field, your farm, and your event. So for each seed mix, I set a new event, and then it would fill in yellow on the screen, so I could see exactly where I've been. So I didn't have any gaps or skips or misses or anything like that. And then once I got my field filled in, I'd just continue on to the next one. And then when I had to come back with a different mix around the, you know, when I did the dry, I had to come back to fill in around those sites with the, the Masic mix. So I could go back, pull up that event on the Trimble, and I could see exactly where I left off. So it worked really good because I was oh, over a period of, it was almost a year of seeding with different mixes and stuff. I had all that information in the Trimble, and I could go back and see, pick up exactly where I left off. Even if I was, you know, had been hadn't been out there for a week, I could go back right where I had left off. So that was ideal for four different mixes. That's now, cool. now when we're having the the seed mix boundaries and the maps, we upload, we, we put GPS points because the Trimble. You cannot upload a shapefile into the Trimble. Ah. So we're using GPS points, and instead of flagging the field, Kent is just using a handheld GPS and going from point to point to point to get his field boundaries and then filled in from there. Kent, are you walking these sites? You're telling me you walked 640 acres? You must be in real good shape. No, in the tractor. <laughs> it was okay, in the we're tractor. just trying to figure this out here. <laughs> Save 640 acres. Kent's eating a donut right now. We're just trying to... Figure out this is his exercise plan. <laughs> like, what's no, this going is, on? The Trimble is mounted right in the tractor. And then when I do my boundaries with a handheld GPS, I'm actually in the tractor driving it, mm. not not walking. Oh, okay. That's <laughs> yeah. an important point so that people understand this. Because I was thinking he's just the most in-shape assistant area wildlife manager that ever lived. But now we, now we know he's cheating. Close, maybe. <laughs> that's, a, that's a podcast for another day back when we have Dave Drava on again <laughs> and not all the shape files came from the Sergo soils either for those seed mix seed mixes the different mixes um, we got shape files from Ducks Unlimited they're using their GPS survey equipment to show us where the hydric fringe would be of all the wetlands and who primarily did the wetland restoration parts did the did we do that the Department of Natural Resources, or was that mostly Ducks Unlimited, or still a partnership? Ducks Unlimited did all of the survey and hired the contractor and did all of those contract oversight on SWESTA. So talk a little bit more about that partnership and how that worked, you know, challenges and opportunities. Again, what 
what worked well, what was hard? I didn't. I don't think any of it was really hard, except for the fact that um, Kent couldn't go out and seed sometimes because we had to wait for spoil to be moved and stuff like that. But that's mm -hmm. typical when you're doing the same. The grassland restoration and the wetland restoration is happening at the same time in concert. Just a lot of communication. Exactly. And we we have an excellent partnership with Duxland. They are the greatest people to work with. That's awesome. That's that is awesome. What made this project was that partnership in yes. part. Yeah. It did. And I think, I don't know, like everybody is bringing their own set of skills to the table. And what I love about Swestinger WMA is that even though Kent yelled at me a lot for the number of seed mixes that we had because it's more work, right? This To do a restoration this way, and I would venture to say to do a restoration right, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of coordination. And the seed mixes are very complicated in detail. A lot more species, right, than maybe you typically would have planted before? Many more than we Many more, right? Typically. Yeah. So there's a lot of pushing from a certain regional ecologist to get a lot of diversity in there. And I think Bill, what did you say when last fall you went out to the site and you sent everybody an email and it was about a particular flower? What was your response, you know, just seeing the restoration kind of growing? Oh, it was dotted blazing star, rough blazing star. I believe I never have seen that in the first year seeding, ever. Boom. It was blooming. I thought it required that the, the corn or the bulb grow first underground before it would send up a shoot and flower. And so then you weren't as mad at a certain regional ecologist right, because you, right. you know, this is the key part of the story that we well, make sure people understand. And you weren't there the first day that Ken was out there <laughs> bouncing. That was kind of rough ground. It might have been bean stubble, but it was harvested when it was pretty wet. And so it was really, it had a lot of ruts. Oops. And Kent is used to driving along, not against the grain of the bean stubble, but with it. And with these seed mixes, it was going around in circles and mm. stuff like that. And he lost his back teeth. I haven't seen <laughs> the dentist still yet. You haven't seen yeah, it. It was rough between the, going across the rows and working around the wetland restoration work, you know, all the dirt work. And they did it in the, in the wintertime, so it was hard and frozen, so it was very rough. And yes, he did bounce around. I know. Well, and I want to point out something, too, not just how rough the ground is, but you did not take this easy on yourselves. After you did all of these seed mixes and you did all of these um, kind of specking out how it was, how the land was going to fit it based on moisture, you went back again to plant a really special grass, <laughs> porcupine grass, because that would have normally been on the dry hill slopes. And so tell us a little bit about how you plant porcupine grass, because you, we didn't plant it with a drill or with a... Um, a Vicon broadcast seeder. Talk to us a little bit about how challenging it is to plant porcupine grass. Well, my first experience with porcupine grass, um, I put it in the Vicon and it just kind of balls <laughs> up and it was didn't work. So we did a little check and I think we asked a couple other managers and uh, we ended up uh, discovering that you have to soak it in water in buckets so the awns kind of come loose and pull apart and we throw it out by hand and you have to wear rain gear or you get soaked and leather gloves because they're they're pretty sharp in order to plant that it takes some ingenuity and patience and goggles because it was a very dusty i remember we were all out there it was 
Kent and Bill and Nate Mullendore and myself, and we were out there and we had little goggles on and gloves and <laughs> we were trying to see who could do it the best. Has any porcupine grass come up at Swissier? Yes, we've seen it. That's great. That's really good. So it worked. So we this was not just an exercise in futility. Can we back up and talk about ons? This is such a cool word. I know. I and I get like really on. nerdy about porcupine grass. And I, I really don't even know if if kind of the myth of how it how it would have self-seeded or does continue to self-seed. I and mean, we're planting it where it likely used to be, but then it wasn't, and now we're putting it back. So so talk a little bit about what, what a porcupine on looks like. They're so cool. They are so cool. So while the grass is maturing and making its seed and it still has the seed on it, on it, on it, on it, on it. On. Uh, <laughs> see what I did there? <laughs> okay, oh, nerd, nerd jokes. While it still <laughs> has the seed on it, I can't stop saying it, it's got a long on, that's A-W-N. I kind of say it the same, on and on. Right. It's hard to know what I'm saying. But it, it does have a long, it's like a quill or a needle. And it's about four to eight inches long. And it basically, it responds to moisture. So as it gets dry, it coils up. And then as it gets wet, it kind of relaxes and uncoils. And that motion, that gradient back and forth between coiling and uncoiling, essentially drills the seed into the ground. So it has this super cool adaptation that as it drops from the grass onto the ground, see that, onto the ground, it drills itself right in. So we're trying to replicate that by right. adding moisture first. And we have to we had to do that for like 30 minutes at least to soak it to help it relax because it takes a long time for those seeds. They're just in a bunch. Otherwise, like a crazy, scary witch's nest kind of bunch. And then it takes them about 30 minutes to relax. So as you're going on and some of the seeds submerge and some of it's not, some of it's easier to spread than others. But hopefully the idea is as it dries, it'll drill itself into the ground. So it's a pretty cool thing. Thanks for that. I appreciated it. Well, oh, you're welcome. I just love it because when it when it coils, it kind of kinks the tip of the on, and it, it does. just looks so cute. But you're right. When they're all together, it's like this huge mess of awfulness, and I can only imagine how hard but that is. They're incredibly important, the yeah. Dry Hill Prairie. So mad props to Kent and Bill for taking it on and going the extra mile and making sure that they can get those little ons in the ground and they can have porcupine grass because ecologically incredibly incredibly important to the function of a dry hill prairie i'm like moving my arms around i'm so excited about porcupine grass i can't Whoa. even i know bill's getting scared Remember, i'm gonna hit him in the face we made you come out to help plant it i know we were yeah we knew what we were facing they thought this was a punishment but it was like one of the most fun days i had last year <laughs> with my goggles helping him plant porcupine grass soaked to the bone we were soaked you were wetter than i was i think it had something to do with technique <laughs> Maybe it was rain gear that Gore-Tex failed on or whatever. The ons busted holes in the Gore-Tex. Yeah, that was not your smartest outfit choice. They're very sharp. Very, very sharp. So what, tell us about some of the things you're finding. What are some of the cool things that are, that's happening out there already in the, this is the second growing season for the most part? Yes, second. What's going on out there, Swessinger? Swessinger Swessinger? Wessinger. Wessinger. I know it's always fun to see the different species coming up. You know, this 
is a more much more diverse mix than what we used to seed. So seeing all these different species come up, you know, other than what we're typically used to in our simpler mixes that we used to do. That's always kind of exciting. I like to see what's coming up and how long it takes. So far we've seen Finstemon, um, Golden Alexanders, some of the grasses. Have you seen any pheasants? Oodles. But we don't want to tell anybody that. How do you measure an oodle of pheasants? <laughs> like by weight? Right. <laughs> like the right. Pound, pound of pheasants. You build it, they will come. They're there. That's all we need to know. And turkeys, you said? No, deer. Deer. Oh, what am I thinking? I'm thinking. I'm looking at a turkey, and so I said turkey. We had a fairly open winter last winter, so the deer stayed. Normally, they wouldn't stay there. Not really a wintering area. Have you seen a good pollinator response? Like when you've been out there, do you see bees and other insects? Lots and lots of insects. Didn't you send me a picture of a monarch last year on the Leatris that you were so excited about? Yeah, I did. That was the whole connection piece. Mm-hmm. Other wildlife that we've seen out there, we had a pair of trumpeter swans with a brood of babies last year and other non-game species like bobolinks, meadowlarks. And of course, none of this would have been wouldn't none of this would have been possible without the funding from the Outdoor Heritage Council. Clean Water, Land, and Legacy Amendment. So just to wrap it up, so the Outdoor Heritage Fund, that money that came for this project is part of that sales tax that the people of Minnesota voted for to voluntarily tax themselves for the arts and conservation, right? Yes. That's that piece. So working for the people of Minnesota, putting it right back into your public lands that you can visit anytime. Jess? Yeah. Let's science to the literature! This is the part of the podcast where we bring in a little bit of literature from books, blogs, peer-reviewed scientific publications to broaden our minds and scopes about prairies and how we restore prairies. So today I want to bring to the table three different... um, Things people can go out and find and read. We'll put these on the website as usual. Um, so the first is a publication that, that came out this year um, by a group that's working, that, I, that I've been really thankful to be part of, the Prairie Reconstruction Initiative Advisory Team, that's putting together some um, crowdsourcing data opportunities to make sure we're planting prairies great every single time. Sometimes we have flops, right? Sometimes things happen out there on the prairie. We don't even know why. And and because this is such a new science, we have to all work together to try to answer some of these questions about when we have success and why and when we have not so much success and why. So this recent paper came out. Um, Diane Larson was the, the lead author on it. It came out this year in 2018, Ecological Restoration. And it just talked about the need and to, for folks that are planting prairie to make sure they document what they're doing and um, you know what kind of seed mixes went into the ground, where the seed mixes went into the ground, how it was planted, what time of year it was planted, all these different things that might factor into whether or not the prairie was successful. So they did kind of a retrospective study looking at a bunch of trying to gather this data themselves to see where the holes were that Um, in terms of data collection. Um, So they had a couple of of insights from their analyses. Um, They found that 
through time, species richness or the number of species that were planted um, were declining. So that's one of the main concerns that a, that a lot of different publications are, are coming out with, that you know, we plant this diverse, these diverse mixes, but then it declines through time. That we may find that that's changing through time as we continue to increase the diversity, but we won't know unless we monitor these sites. So it's certainly something that I want to get out there in Swessinger and start using these PRI monitoring protocols to document the diversity, especially you know in the second growing year here, we might be able to do that. Less of these annual weeds and things popping up will get more of what we actually planted um, showing up. So um, variables such as fire, they also found in this paper were really hard to kind of document and, and remember unless they were written down. So this paper just really drives home what we need to be documenting from a, from a prairie restoration standpoint in order to learn, to crowdsource and to learn from, from what we're doing. Um, the second I'm showing you here, as if you can see, the second piece that I want to bring to the table is this prairie reconstruction guidebook produced by North Dakota or from the NDSU um, extension service, but also some U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service um, folks put this together. You can find it on the web. We'll put it on our website too, a link to it. Um, it's really helpful. It goes through all these different steps of how you restore prairie. Um, so it's, a, it's a pretty thick document. Uh, I think it was published in 2017. Um, it's really helpful if you, you're just brand new to this and you prairie reconstruction thing, you don't know what you're doing. Um, this is really helpful. It doesn't go into kind of this what I call precision planting. It doesn't talk about that. That's maybe volume two or something. We, maybe we can write that. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's breaking new ground with that. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool stuff. Um, so, so this is a, a really helpful resource. And the third thing I want to talk about is one of Chris Helzer's uh, blogs that we, Megan and I, really always enjoy reading and, and we talk about it and you know kind of banter a little bit about what he's finding and what what we see here in Minnesota. And so one of his blogs is talking about um, poison hemlock and just kind of some quick and dirty stats that he was doing looking at whether or not um, poison hemlock was repelled by diversity or, um, you know, whether or not increased diversity could repel these invasive species. That's one of the prevailing theories that if we increase the diversity, it, it increases or decreases the invasibility, right? So if you have more species there filling more niches then invasive species are less likely to come in. And I love that because that's my right. whole, <laughs> just knows this is my whole soapbox that I'm on all the time. You heard Kent kind of use his whiny voice earlier when he was talking about how we, this mean regional ecologist just made him do this more diverse mix, but they're seeing things that they haven't seen before. So I've, I hope what you're getting from Bill and Kent is that we're evolving too. We're learning too. Each time they do a restoration or a reconstruction, they're doing it a little bit different than the last one because they're learning from the last one and we're getting better and better. And that premise of diversity, I could talk about that all day long. And that's why Jess and I chat about it so much when Chris Helzer brings it up on his blog because I just feel like in nature, nature always tries to insert diversity into any scenario. And so I feel like if you want to use nature as your guide to do prairie reconstruction or any kind of reconstruction, you have to have that diversity as a foundation. 
Yeah, it's very important, and the science clearly shows that, that the more diversity we have, the less management for the future. See, I'm trying to help you, Kent. I want you to get off the sprayer for so many reasons. <laughs> I want you to not even have to get on it. That's what we're trying to do. Okay. Which makes Bill happy, because then Kent's happy, and then the Sladen office is happy. <laughs> hey, Megan. Yeah, Jess? Take a hike. I think I will. So this is the part of the podcast where we highlight your fabulous public lands, where you can, in fact, take a hike to experience prairie in all of its gloriousness. And it just would not be right if we didn't highlight as our number one property that you all own, the Swessinger Wildlife Management Area. So we didn't say this earlier. We just kept saying it's a section of land, section of land, but it's actually about 713 acres. It's in Nobles County. And there, you heard Bill say earlier, 30 30, is that right, Bill? Reconstructed wetlands? Over 30. Over 30. Wow. Over 30 of them definitely have lots of different types of prairie that they're trying to create out there. Dry, mesic, wet, and I love how Bill says it, wetter. <laughs> There's wet and then wetter, <laughs> otherwise known as wetland to everybody else. But I like, I like how Bill talks about it. And because of that, he mentioned it earlier, you can observe deer, small game, pheasants, and as Minnesotans say, waterfall. So there's Lots also waterfall. Waterfall. <laughs> Let's say it the Minnesota way. In that general complex, though, there's also U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has the Bloom Waterfowl Production Area. It's literally right across the street from Swessinger. You can just walk south. Or if you're Kent, get in your tractor and you just drive across the road south. So this waterfowl production area, it does provide habitat, unsurprisingly, for a vast variety of waterfowl shorebirds, grassland birds, plants, insects, and other wildlife. And then north of Swessinger, if you wanted to go the other way and go into Murray County a little bit, there's a 516-acre unit called the Fenmont Wildlife Management Area. And so that has permanent and semi-permanent wetlands, meaning that they're ephemeral, so they may dry up as the season progresses. They also have uplands, some woody cover plantings, which you don't typically see out in this area, and then you can also um, have, it has good road access through it, so you can have good wildlife viewing. It is one of those sites that if you um, are not able to walk or if you need a little bit more assistance, it has a nice long road through it so that you can do your wildlife viewing from the car or the tractor as Kent prefers. <laughs> so now, Bill and Kent, because y'all are here, I want to know, tell me some of your favorites. We'll start with you, Bill. I want to know your favorite wildlife management area in this well, or one of your favorites. We don't want the other ones to get jealous. Swessinger, of course. <laughs> I mean, I have to say that right now because yeah. it it was such a fun project to work on. You build it, they will come, and they have come. You can see it out there. If you want to take a walk, you will find wildlife. You'll find lots of diversity out there. Everything from frogs to turtles to geese, ducks. Of course, we don't want to talk about those pesky Canada geese eating our new prairie seeding that was coming up last year. But, <laughs> but you know, we, we gave them a break. We opportunities yeah. for some fall hunting. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a nice vista. Where's where can people overlook almost the whole property? And when we were talking on the phone last week, you were telling me about there's this one spot where you can park and then you can walk up the hill and you can kind of see. The lay of the land. If you go to the south side of the unit, County Road 18, the middle parking, well, it's not, the parking lot hasn't been developed yet, but it will be. Um, 
there's a sign there. You just walk north and keep walking until you're on top of the hill. You'll you'll see the entire section from there almost. Nice. I love vistas. Kent, what about you? What's your favorite? Well, I have lots of favorites, but my current favorite probably is Plum Creek, WMA. Oh. It's got uh, some nice native prairie. Um, it's got some hardwoods, creek running through it, and we're currently developing that one right now, so that one's kind of fun. There's lots of deer, turkeys, pheasants, so that's my current favorite. Subject to change within a week. <laughs> and the partnership continues because uh, Bill and Kate, I was graciously invited out on that site and we got to do a little bit of a walk and kind of see what their plans were for the restoration, look at the different areas and what the future seed mixes are going to be. It kind of had some really unique areas because it overlooks, it has this really steep hillside that overlooks then a wetland that extends onto the private land. There, what would you call that a wetland or like a full blown marsh? Oh, I don't know, probably just a wetland. A wetland, we'll just call it a wetland. But it's really neat because you can be on the top of that hillside and you can look all the way down. And there were quite a few pheasants out there when we were out there as well scouting. Everybody knows a good wildlife manager does a lot of scouting in the fall, it's important. So, <laughs> for obvious reasons. So these are just a sample of some of your public lands. As always, you can check out all of these on the DNR's Recreation Compass. It is an online tool. You can also, it's mobile accessible, so you can access it on your cell phone. It is not an app currently, but you just go through it on your web browser like you normally would. You can search by unit name, you can search by county, or you can just scroll on the map, just like you would in Google Maps. And then it will give you a lat long, and you can navigate right to these areas to find your public lands. I love it. It's a handy tool. We mention it every single time. Use the DNR Recreation Compass. I use it at work. Do you use it at work, Jess, like oh, at yeah. your desk? Okay. When I'm trying to find when they're talking to me, a wildlife manager calls me, and they're like, what about this unit? Because you guys are amazing, and you know exactly where they all are just in your head. I don't have that yet. Like, I don't have that ability to just know where they are. So I have to cheat and open up the Rec Compass. We had to use maps at first, though, to get to them. Right. Mm -hmm. Yep. Now they're in the rec compass, so we can cheat and right. use our skills. Well, I'm really glad that you guys were here today. And you've got work to do, so we don't want to hold you up. Jess, it was nice, wasn't it nice? It was wonderful. As always, I got goosebumps. I just, it was just great. Anytime we talk about partnerships, Jess and I nerd out. Well, we are going to catch you next week on the Prairie Pod. We're going to talk through establishment phase management for restorations. And we teased it a little bit on this podcast episode when I yelled at Kent for spraying. So we'll talk through a little bit of that to spray or not to spray, benefits and pitfalls, how to get Megan not to yell at you. Um, what you do now matters later. Gosh, sounds like something my mother would say to me. Huh. Till next time. Bye, Jess. See you Bill. later. Kent. See you later. Bye.